Hey there, welcome to Bold Is, where we have made it our goal to help you learn the Bible verse by verse. Today we're continuing in our study of Mark with chapter 11. If you're new to our podcast, we're so glad that you're here. And just so you know, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, sometimes called the ESV, just in case you're interested in following along. Let's get started. This is Mark chapter 11. You are listening to Bold Is, a ministry podcast training women how to handle the Word of God. Buckle up, sis. It's about to get real. Here's your host, Megan Rawlings. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the ground, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king, coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The Mount of Olives has significance dating back to David. It was a place of worship as seen in 2 Samuel. If you look in chapter 15, verse 32, it says, When David reached the summit of the Mount of Olives, where people worshipped God, Hushai an archite was waiting there for him. Hushai had torn his clothing and put dirt on his head as a sign of mourning. J.R. Edwards states, at the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Ezekiel had a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem and settling on the Mount of Olives. That's Ezekiel 11.23. According to Zechariah 14.4, the Mount of Olives would be the site of final judgment, and the rabbis and Josephus associated it with the coming of the Messiah. Mark, who seldom mentions place names, may mention the Mount of Olives here in order to associate its messianic significance with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Then we see that in the Old Testament, the cult is identified as the Mount of the Messiah. Talk about foreshadowing. This is seen in Zechariah 9 and Genesis 49. That being said, Jesus is not an unknowing victim. He knows what is waiting for him, and this was the end of the beginning. There is some super interesting information given by Edwards again, so let me just read that. He also said, in keeping with his servant and secrecy motif, Mark prefers subtle messianic imagery to open proclamation. The spreading of cloaks and branches before Jesus is of course suggestive of the ceremonious welcome of a king, as in the inauguration of Jehu. They hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. Then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. That's 2 Kings 9.13. The shout of Hosanna is a transliterated Hebrew word meaning literally, save, I pray. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118.25-26 referred not to the Messiah, but to pilgrims entering the temple sanctuary, meaning that the pilgrim is blessed in God's name. Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Let me say that again. 
Mark is warning against mistaking enthusiasm for faith and popularity for discipleship. Jesus is not confessed in pomp and circumstance, but only at the cross. Let's continue. Verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Jesus, you're overreacting. But don't think that. That's heresy. (laughs) Jesus would never overreact. So we need to look at this because there is obviously a deeper meaning. When Mark is telling the story of Jesus in the fig tree, he exploits its symbolic importance. You see, he views the curse of the tree as the fate of Jerusalem and the temple. The prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Joel, and Micah use the fig tree as a symbol of judgment. Let me break this down further. The fig tree has leaves, which is promising that there is fruit too. And it is this deception that it compares to the decep- that Jesus is comparing the deception of the temple, which, despite its religious commerce and activity, is really an outlaw's hiding hideout. Um, verse seventeen: the curse of the fig tree is a symbol of God's judgment of the temple. Moving on to verse fifteen. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And which evening came, they went out of the city. Just something that's exciting and new. Um, we are studying Leviticus right now. The Bold Movement is. And there's a Bible study out if you're interested. It's free. Super exciting. And this is something that um, kind of puts into perspective. When Jesus is cleansing out the temple, what they were doing is they were selling um, animals for sacrifice. The reason that's not okay is because the whole point of bringing your sacrifice to the temple is you bring your best and um, true worship is giving something up as a sacrifice um, as we are learning in Leviticus. So if you're just paying for something to sacrifice, it's not really hurting you. It's not giving something up that's important to you or that you need, right? The way that giving the best of your flock is. So that's one of the reasons. Um, Another reason is it's completely exploiting um, the Jews too. Just so you know the enormity of the temple industry, um, I'm going to read something about Josephus. He claimed that in 66 AD, the year the temple was completed, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed for Passover for Passover in that year, okay? Edward says the temple is not the sole property of Israel, but a witness to the nations, the place where anyone who loves the name of the Lord may worship him. And that's Isaiah 56, 6, a place where God will gather still others. Isaiah 56, 8. Let's keep going. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I have quoted a lot of Edwards today and I'm not going to stop now. So listen to this. What Jesus does in the temple goes beyond a purging or corrective act. It attacks the very commerce upon which the temple cult depended, laying an axe at the root of the temple as an institution. Together with the subsequent events of Holy Week, Mark portrays the cleaning of the temple not as its restoration, but as its disillusion. Like the fig tree, its function is withered from the roots. Not one stone of the temple will be left on another says Jesus in his final temporal discourse in Mark. Everyone will be thrown down. In his own body, the temple is broken down, and in himself, as a ransom for many, it is being um, raised anew in three days, a temple not made with human hands. Not the blood of animals slaughtered by the high priest on the Day of Atonement, but his own blood, the blood of the covenant, which make is will make Israel right with God. Indeed, at the moment of his death, the great curtain that divides the Holy of Holies from the court of Israel is torn in two, dramatizing the dissolution of the temple as the means of approach to God. In his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus alone is the access to God. The fig tree thus symbolizes the temple as the means of approach to God. The temple is fundamentally from the roots replaced by Jesus as the center of Israel. Moving on, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say... Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I want to be honest with you all. I have really been struggling with trust and faith in God lately. I don't know what it stemmed from, but I do know I was much more content when I just gave it to God. Edward says faith is the opposite of doubting in one's heart. Faith is also the opposite of fear. It is a choice to trust in Jesus despite everything to the contrary and to expect from him what cannot be expected from anything else in the world. There is this an inevitable connection between faith and prayer with which Mark ends this section. Now, when the question arises, by what authority, it shows us that the Sanhedrin did not necessarily have an issue with what Jesus did, but rather with what right he had to do, he did it with. Let's see what Edward says. What Jesus now asks of them cannot be answered from their power base in the Torah, the temple, or Roman authority. Thus, the question of Jesus implies that he stands not under the Sanhedrin, but over it. His counter question is evidence of the very authority about what she has questioned. The baptism of Jesus, in other words, was the event that inaugurated his exousia, which is um, authority um, in Greek. His conscious oneness with the Father and his sovereign freedom and empowerment for ministry. If the Sanhedrin wants to know whence Jesus received authority to do these things, it must reconsider John's baptism. A decision about John is a decision about Jesus. 
if John's baptism were solely from men, that is fully explainable by empirical science, um, then the Sanhedrin may be justified in its accusation of Jesus. But if John's baptism was from heaven, that is divinely inspired as the crowds believed and as the Sanhedrin evidently feared, then Jesus' authority exceeded mere human authority. It must be explained by the authority of God. To those unwilling to commit themselves, Jesus refuses to commit himself. Neither will I tell you by the authority I am doing these things. Those who cannot be honest with themselves cannot be honest about Jesus. All right, we are done. We cannot thank you all enough for being a part of the Bold Movement. We wanted to let you know that everything we do in this ministry is 100% free. And if you're bad at math, that means 10 out of 10. Now, there are a few exceptions, so I guess it's really not 10 out of 10. (laughs) There are a few incentives that we like to give for our financial supporters. These include discounts on our merchandise, additional resources on our website, and early access to all of our content. If you believe in what we're doing and would like to consider helping us, would you pray about joining us as a sponsor? We have plans ranging from $1 a month to $25 a month. And with your donation, you're ensuring that we can give you, among other women, content to help you better understand your Bible. If you can't afford to help us, we could definitely use your prayers. If you like us, would you rate and review our podcast? This helps us get out there so that others find us too. Also, please check us out at www.theboldmovement.com. Ladies, remember, go out and be bold.